us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Jerry, John, Garrett, Ben, and Janet and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Rob Eckelbecker. Rob is a PhD candidate at Montana State University with the Cooperative Fisheries Research Unit, where he is advised by Dr. Christopher Guy. Shortly after finishing his undergrad at Unity College, he moved to Oregon for a seasonal position with the Forest Service before working as a biologist for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. After four years in Florida, Rob moved to Auburn to pursue a master's under Dr. Catalano, uh, working with digital game cameras to obtain angler effort estimates. Upon completion of his master's, Rob immediately continued to Bozeman, Montana to start his PhD on quantifying predation of burbot by non-native trout. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thank you. I always like to start with people's backgrounds. So where did your interest in fisheries first begin? So I imagine like most of us, my interest in fisheries really began with actually handling and playing with fish at a young age. There's photos of me still in diapers, holding bluegill and bass from my grandmother's dock in Florida. And so really it was just being out in nature, enjoying it, being really exposed throughout my entire life to uh, the outdoors, especially I was fortunate to live in Guam for a little bit of my life. And my dad took us out snorkeling the reefs since the reefs are very close to the island almost every day. And so seeing that many fish and just seeing the different types of ecosystems and wonders really just sparked an interest in me. That's what I wanted to do. Awesome. Can you give a short overview of your career path up to this point? Cause I know you've bounced around uh, quite a bit to get here. <laughs> uh, I think not as much as many other people. So as you mentioned in the bio, I started my undergraduate career up in Maine and while working there, I was an aquaculture technician for this college and then also volunteered with Maine Inland Fish and Wildlife, did a few small projects with them. Then I got my first true summer position after I finished my undergraduate career out in Oregon, where I worked with the Forest Service doing stream survey work. And then after that, I immediately secured a biologist position with Florida and stayed there for several years. After that, I went on to Auburn to get a master's because I kind of capped out what you can make and do as a biologist with an undergraduate degree in fisheries at Florida, and then decided I liked research so much that, you know, why not pursue a PhD? So I know you don't think you bounce around that much, but I mean, Maine, Oregon, Florida, Montana, like there's, (laughs) that's covering a lot of different ecosystems and species. So what kind of things were you looking for when you decided to apply to these different like technician or biologist positions? So really, I enjoy the diversity of just different ecosystems, different locations, different species. So it's kind of made it fun hopping across the country, changing, you know, from warm water to cold water, Mm -hmm. uh, because it really shows some of the knowledge gaps you have, especially in your education or even sampling techniques. But really, the most important thing when I look for any of these positions, which I'm sure most of are, is making sure you can afford to live there and that there are benefits like I was not able in my career to choose to take any unpaid internship or unpaid positions. Um, I was fortunate with that Forest Service position that they supplied housing for a very discounted rate. 
And that was the main things I really looked for is one new opportunities to expand my resume and then whether logistically you can afford to be there. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know that I never ever like specifically considered cost of living, but it did affect like if I was like living in a tent for multiple days at a time and like could commute back to where I was already paying rent or anything like that, which isn't something I feel like we talk about a lot, especially to outgoing undergrads. Yeah. I mean, I saw today where, you know, there's a position looking for some summer techs working with sharks and it was either Belize or the Bahamas. And you're like, wow, that sounds fantastic. And then you get to the bottom. It's like, this is unpaid. And you're like, not for me. Yeah, for sure. So once you decided that research was maybe more of an interest to you than going back and working as a biologist after your master's, what like general research themes kind of pulled you into that realm? Yeah. So when I was in Florida, I mean, I was there for four years. I was lucky where I kind of split positions in the beginning where I did creel surveys initially, and it was part of this long-term monitoring project where we'd sample about 31 different lakes across the entire state. And that would be through crappie trawls, community electrofishing, bass-specific targeted electrofishing. And then at one time, we did mini fight nets to catch some of the smaller fish that really don't have an interest to sport fish managers. But then that has switched to submerged aquatic vegetation mapping. And I just found that after four years, it kind of got repetitive. Mm-hmm. And so that's what really got my interest into research, where kind of the world is your oyster. You're trying to find ways to like fill in knowledge gaps or even just, you know, as you're out there, you come up with these ideas like, huh, I wonder why it's this way. And so that's really what caught my eye to research as a whole. But then topics that I'm interested in, really, I've kind of focused more on the quantitative side and a little bit previous in my career, some of the GIS to fill in some knowledge gaps. And also I find that they've been kind of cool uh, resources where you kind of diversify your profile that I can use these skills and techniques to work across boundaries, not just within, you know, sport fish, mm-hmm. but you can apply it to almost any biological position. Yeah, that will be a good segue. I'm going to jump a couple questions from the list I gave you. Um, Cause I saw in your CV that you'd won a GIS championship and I was, one, I was just curious what a GIS championship is. And then from there, can you just talk about, I guess, maybe expand on what you were just saying about how beneficial you find the skills of working with GIS are for fisheries and just your career in general. So it's actually funny on that GIS championship because I wasn't there. So it happened a year after I graduated in my GIS professor, Dr. Kathleen Dunkel, submitted my work. So while I was attending undergrad in Maine, we got asked by the Department of Inland Fish and Wildlife that we can make a habitat suitability model for black bears in the wildlife management district that Unity College resides in. And then they also partnered with the Conservation Commission there to do studies where we'd collect actually DNA and such from black bears using snare traps. And so she submitted my work that I did where we created a habitat suitability model for the entire district to try to target locations where we thought black bears might be with those hair snares. And it ended up winning. So can't really answer what a championship is. but uh, <laughs> Just that you won one. <laughs> that my legacy work got submitted and won. <laughs> but uh, truly, I found um, having these diversity of skills, which... I guess might not be that diverse nowadays under current curriculum, 
but really helped me stand out in the forest stores and within Florida Fish and Wildlife. Um, I was a skill and technique that most of the other entry-level people did not have and allowed me to take on some personal projects with the bird. Within the Forest Service, we created the sampling maps and locations and helped decide reach breaks remotely using GIS. And then even in Florida Fish and Wildlife, I used it to make our habitat, or not habitat, uh, submerged aquatic vegetation maps, really getting that percent area covered and percent volume infested. And we were able to do that in, I guess, network within our office and created the protocol on each of those on how to do it. So I think that's one great benefit I had to even establish these positions and to keep longer term. I mean, you don't hear too often of a person with an undergrad nowadays having a biologist position. So yeah, definitely. One thing that's been helpful, and you notice in a lot of uh, academic conferences and such, you'll see a lot of skill workshops relating to you know R GIS, and you know I've been fortunate where I've taught GIS workshops about how to use it within fisheries and wildlife in Auburn University, and then also have done some smaller workshops for some of the smaller like local meetings. Awesome. So I think it'd be good to jump back and talk a bit more about your work at Auburn. So what was that project? I know it was about angler effort, but can you talk about like what you did for that, what you found, what you found most exciting from it? Definitely. So at Auburn, we they were interested in using digital game cameras, basically you know, game cameras that you'd use for hunting as a way to estimate angler effort on reservoirs. So uh, these reservoirs were just too far out or too large to actually get comprehensive creel surveys done. And so what my project focused on was evaluating if this technique could even be used on these uh, reservoirs. So what we did is we had digital game cameras placed on every public boat ramp get around a reservoir and then we created relationships with it at a single point in time by using a flyover census count so i partnered with auburn aviation and would fly out about three times a month and get instantaneous counts of how many boats were on the water and tell how many were fishing versus just recreationally out there such as pontooning wakeboarding so we found that there was a relationship between you know a single time and a single point in time from a single count from the flyover to how many trailers we saw in the parking lot. So then it got expanded again to see now they how it would work at a single location through time. So we did an access creel at a single boat ramp location. Uh, we do about, so Alabama only does access creels on the weekends for the most part. So we copied their technique where you'd be there seven and a half hours before sunset and 30 minutes past sunset and you'd interview any angler that was coming off the water. And again, we looked at the relationship between how many trailers we saw through time now at a single location to what the angler effort estimates were from the access crew and found again that they worked. And then to finally make sure it works on the entire reservoir scale, we also implemented a roving creel and then saw how angler effort estimates from all the cameras on all the public boat ramps worked compared to the angler effort estimate from the entire reservoir using the roving creel. So overall, we found that the relationships existed and were quite strong, except they became quite weak in the summer when we just have so many more pleasure cruisers out there, mm -hmm. <laughs> not every trailer's fishing, and we just couldn't differentiate in the pictures because I mean, a pontoon can fish or just be out cruising. Yeah. So do you know if, 
I guess I don't know what the Fish and Game Agency in Alabama is called, but do you know, are they using game cameras now? To be honest, I'm not sure. I know a lot of states are kind of moving that way. Um, during my time in Florida, we did something similar, but we actually used where uh, it was motion triggered so that you could see an actual individual time of when a boat was put in or taken out. Mm -hmm. But I do know that game cameras are becoming a lot more popular in the States, at least as a way to monitor some fishing effort. Right. Very cool. All right. So then you went from Alabama all the way up here to Bozeman, Montana, still looking at recreational fisheries to some extent. Can you talk a bit about your PhD work so far here? So though I'm here in Montana, my focus area is in Torrey Creek drainage of Wyoming, which is outside of Dubois, Wyoming. So in the system, there is a trophy brown trout fishery, and also lake trout are found, and rainbow trout are stocked as a recreational opportunity. However, there's a native species known as a burbot, which is a freshwater cod, For since a lot of people don't actually know what a burbot is. And the burbot population has been declining over the years, and there's been several other studies looking at trying to figure out why the burbot decline is happening. Um, one project has focused on seeing if they were getting stuck in irrigation canals. Uh, another was looking to see if they were just out migrating out of the system. And the most recent one was looking to see if winter angling pressure was causing the decline. However, all of these have been ruled out as not major significant factors of declining the burbot population. So during a survey previous done by Wyoming Dam and Fish, they noticed burbot tails hanging out of some brown trout mouths. So of course, naturally the next topic to look at would be to see if these non-native trout species, which are really popular among anglers, could be causing the decline of burbot. So my project is really looking at evaluating the impacts that non-native trout, especially the brown trout and a little bit of the lake trout are having, especially towards predation on burbot within the Torrey Creek system. How are you assessing if they're predating on burbot or not? So we extract the diets using a gastric lavage method. So essentially you're flushing water down their stomach to force them to regurgitate any contents that would be in their stomachs. And bringing that back to the lab, we can analyze down to what they're eating. With fish parts, a lot of it comes down to looking for a clitherm, which is a bone that connects to the jaw. Uh, any otolith parts that might be in the diets or even vertebrae counts if you have enough of a intact fish to see what it is. What we're really finding though, is that these ground trout and lake trout don't seem to be really predating on burbot, but that we can only tell what's going on with the current system and the current population, so. Are you also using stable isotopes or is that still part of your project? It is, so another way we are evaluating it is we're using stable isotopes to determine trophic position. However, we are not using stable isotopes that isotopically match any predation items within okay. the stomach. And what we're finding is even using that and some of the dietary overlap is that brown trout that are adults kind of in the piscivorous stage and burbot have some overlap between them, especially in diet contents and these stable isotopes. But lake trout seem to be kind of ruled out as any possible decline. Um, they are isotopically different from the burbot and their dietary overlap is minimal, which kind of coexists what you see in the literature where, you know, in the Great Lakes, burbot and lake trout coexist and live there. Mm -hmm. And most studies actually find that burbot are detrimental to lake trout by predating on young and year lake trout, where it's very rare to see lake trout consuming burbot. 
Do you have any idea of what might be causing vertebrate decline if it's not predation from these trout species? So there's been a few recent studies that have come out to show that stable winter temperatures, especially during, you know, egg embryogenesis is happening, has been causing some declines and mutations in other vertebrate populations. Really, it's showing that for a critical period that it's really important to keep the temperature stable. I haven't looked at our temperature data yet to ensure that it stays that way, but that is one possible concern we have. Another is recently running through some of the bioenergetics of burbit. We're finding that under the current composition of dietary contents they have, that it may not be enough to actually be a caloric gain. So during these growth models using bioenergetics, we're actually seeing that a fish modeled under maximum consumption, which is a theoretical limit, are actually losing weight. Uh, we've explored to see if different temperatures would change it since burbot are a very cold dwelling fish. And we're finding that even the temperatures that the Torrey Creek drainage are currently existing on, that does not seem to be the limitation. So it doesn't appear that global increase in temperature in the system itself, especially during summer, is not the major decline or a major reason for decline. It could just be that their prey preference that they're having in the system is not allowing for optimum growth. And really what we're noticing the difference between our system and other systems is the amount of fish found within the burbot diets is quite minimal. We're seeing about 33% by weight, where in other studies it's over 50. So is that more likely that they're losing out on like, like competition wise than they are being predated on? Or is it hard to say at this point? I would just say it's hard to say at this point. We didn't really take into account of what the prey availability would be in the subject and the okay. study area. Because really the only thing I've sampled is when we've done you know, nighttime electrofishing, we've only collected the trout species or burbot. And then with the gill nets, we collect everything, but of course we're using larger mesh gill nets. So most of the prey species should be able to swim through. So I don't know if there is a limitation in the system that would indicate that maybe competition is causing some competitive exclusion. So I'm just unsure. So just a lot more questions. <laughs> Great part about research, right? Yeah. You think you answer one and there's three more. Yep. So in addition to working on your PhD, you're also fairly heavily involved in AFS. You're the continuing ed person for the Montana AFS and have also um, been involved in the student subunit. So do you want to talk about like, what you find valuable about participating in AFS and how you got your start with that? I laugh with just my uh, fisheries progression as a whole because I didn't realize fisheries, what it was when I initially started. Uh, I think like several of us as a kids, I said I wanted to be a marine biologist, but the entire time I knew I wanted to work with fish. Some odd reason in my uh, incorrect frame of knowledge, I thought fisheries only dealt with commercial fisheries. And I was like, that's not of interest. So it wasn't until in undergrad that I realized, wow, there's this whole career field that is my focus and switched over to it. But Unity College was a small liberal arts college. Uh, when I attended, there was only about 500 people on campus. So when I say small, I guess I mean tiny. And we did not actually have a AFS there on campus, but we were in the process of getting the Wildlife Society during my junior or senior year. And with working through that, I realized that there was this other professional group 
the American Fisheries Society that I should be a part of. So I actually became a, a student member my senior year and really didn't know much about it, but it allowed me, you know, access to some of the journals and kind of get my foot more into fisheries. And it wasn't until my time in Florida that I became a more active member. So Florida has its own state meeting and most of the uh, XCOM is actually Florida Fish and Wildlife employees. And I was not part of the XCOM or anything there, but I started attending the annual state meetings. And then during my time at Auburn is when I really started attending every Southern Division national meeting and the state meeting in Alabama. Taking the workshops there, I've been fortunate to take several, including, you know, Bayesian analysis. But I realized, like, hey, this is something that even I could do. And I have, you know, as I mentioned previously, done a GIS workshop for some of the state meetings and then even got asked for the Southern Division meeting to uh, help put on a workshop where we talked about the use of those digital game cameras as a means to estimate angler effort. So I've kind of worked through fishery society, kind of like, one is just a paying member and kind of attending these conferences, but really at Auburn is when I joined a student subunit and then really got an interest in recruiting undergrads and getting them into the society and the parent society. And I found that to be extremely beneficial on their part because it just seems so much more helpful as a student member to kind of sh having this more advanced person show them the ropes and say, like, there's this whole community out here. I mean, they have greatly developed web pages and everything about how to build a CV or resume or how to write a cover letter to even their job board. And then as I progress now to even my PhD here at Montana State University, I got more involved with the student subunit and got asked if I'd be the chair of continuing education for uh, Montana's AFS, uh, which has been really exciting because then you kind of get to help plan and choose the workshops. Uh, that go on at your state meeting. However, as anything is getting some public involvement on like what people are interested in is kind of difficult, but as a whole, you know, being a member has been greatly beneficial in the sense of there's so many resources available and it just connects you to other people and has a great way for you to network. And I thought it would have been extremely beneficial if I knew more about uh, the AFS Society earlier in my undergraduate career. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So one question I always like to ask towards the end of interviews, especially of grad students, because I think we can get bogged down in our research really easily. Um, what hobbies and interests do you have outside of your science that you do? So I imagine like most of us, I spend a lot of time fishing. <laughs> really here since Montana has such a huge fly fishing culture, I picked up fly fishing when I moved here. Before that, I can probably count on my hand how many times I attempted at fly fishing. Only thing I've ever caught before Montana was a bluegill on a fly rod. Yeah, perfect gateway fish. Gets a lot of us into fishing. But uh, other than that, other hobbies I'm really into is uh, I played tennis as a high school student and continue that on and now has evolved into pickleball with the growing uh, popularity of that sport. Seems to have a lower entry to get other people to join more than tennis does. But really those are my main two hobbies that I do. All right. Well, Rob, that brings us to the end of what we call the tough part of the interview and to our final five questions, which is a group of questions we ask, we ask each of the guests that come on the show. The first one is, what is your favorite fish? 
so really my favorite fish is the American eel, which might be surprising. Uh, I was fortunate in my time in Florida and was able to sample quite a few of them and work with Kim Bonvecchio. She had some side projects looking at how they were doing in terms of some recruitment problems. And I think one reason that they're just so interesting to me is they're a freshwater eel, but also the fact that they have that catagorous lifestyle, which is, you know, the flipped of the salmon, which everyone thinks of when you think of migrating fish species. And I don't know, I think it's just fascinating that both sides of that lifestyle exist and how it pays off for them. Also very difficult to get a length and weight on. Uh, <laughs> so squirmy and slimy, but I mean, it was always exciting when you dipped one out electrofishing. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. Um, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Working on that uh, long-term rogering project, I was able to work with a bunch of different uh, local groups across the state. And one opportunity I had that I'll always remember is doing some gill nets for alligator gar and gulf sturgeon and just being able to handle those megafauna species because it was remarkable. During my sampling event out there with them, we got a 104-pound alligator gar and just God. holding up that dinosaur is amazing. One, they're just so big that you're like, wow. <laughs> and then two, knowing, I mean, like they're a historic fish that's been around for a while. And I don't know, it was just so cool for, you know, normally my time was spent electrofishing bass where you saw a 10-pounder and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool, which then you get desensitized to. But adding a whole nother magnitude to 100 pounds yeah. was just, I mean, and the hilarious part is, uh, where the biologist is there he's like all right do you think you can release it i was like i can barely just stand here with it <laughs> like there was no moving with it right <laughs> multiple person job yeah i mean and it's so crazy like looking at the boy anchor tags and stuff they do there where they actually have like these huge metal plates just just a different tier of wildlife and fish that right i'm normally working with <laughs> That's awesome. All right. What is your dream job and or location? It's funny because my dream job keeps changing. Originally, like I think a lot of people, I just wanted to be a fish biologist. And I guess I didn't set my goals or dreams that high. Uh, was able to achieve that relatively early. And I mean, I think that's a great thing. It shows that the fisheries career isn't too far out of reach for most people, that it's actually achievable. But as I've continued on to get some more education, now my dream job is now looking at applying these quantitative skills into larger systems or groups, uh, really seeing how quantitative science can be used to inform you know, management or recovery of species. So really now my dream job is change from being a biologist of a local, small, you know, whatever chain you're in charge of to really trying to apply these skills that we've learned in graduate school to impact an entire, you know, either fishery or stock of a program, or what I think might be more exciting is even the recovery of other species. Mm -hmm. As far as location, I keep bouncing between warm to cold, warm to cold, but uh, my time in Guam was definitely my favorite place I ever lived. So I think a nice remote tropical island sounds perfect, <laughs> especially <laughs> <so nice. laughs> Six months of winter in Bozeman last year, I can use, you know, a tropical dream vacation. Yeah, that's life. fair. <laughs> that was a long winter. <laughs> All right. If money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? 
so really just as I mentioned, you know, my favorite memory is working with those megafauna of, you know, alligator gar or the gulf sturgeon. But really if money was not an issue, it'd be cool to work on any other project that deals with some of these other fish species that I would classify as megafauna in different countries. You know, anything in the Amazon River, especially with the, you know, Arapaima sounds fascinating. Even changing it kind of out of the fish world, but you know, there's a few species of river dolphins left, doing anything with them. So Really, it would just be the opportunity to do some kind of study abroad and really work with some sort of megafauna. However, there's plenty of stuff still here that, you know, is beyond exciting. <laughs> I don't really have a good answer on this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've never done any salmon work. So even though that isn't necessarily like remote or hard to get to, you know, it still sounds very fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. So I really don't think money's the issue. I think it's I think it's just deciding on something. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do it all. That's funny. All right. Last question is if there was one pointer principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I think I kind of have two things that go with it, which one is we all have different things that are hurdles and set us back, but really getting into this career field seems to be as much volunteering and getting your name out there as you can early on. So I'd really say during your undergraduate career or even before, try to contact local agencies. Uh, I was fortunate when I was in Texas that I volunteered with Texas A&M's Animal Rehabilitation Team as a high school student. And though, yeah, a lot of it was cleaning and feeding animals, but at least it started giving me some of the husbandry skills that I can put on a resume, which then linked on to when I started with my undergraduate that I volunteered with. Uh, the main department of inland fish and wildlife did a few creel surveys with them uh, helped tag fish that were going to be released for recreational opportunities and really getting the diversity of skills and even these one minors you can put on your resume sets you apart in that early career part when you're trying to apply for those summer internships or even your first job and then the second thing i could say which has been extremely beneficial to me is try to diversify yourself in some way. Uh, I was lucky and I had that GIS background that I obtained from undergraduate. But I mean, really having a quantitative or you know, the GIS background, and I'm sure there's other things, you know, strong mechanic skills really apply to any of these positions where you may not use it as often as you'd hope, or I don't even know if hope is the right word, but they do set you apart and they'll come into play later on in your career. So those would be what I got. That sounds great. <laughs> Thank you again for coming on the podcast today. It was nice catching up with you and hearing about your work and your previous work, which I knew a little bit less about. If people want to reach out to you to find out more information about your project or just get a hold of you, how should they do that? So the best way is probably to my academic email, which would be robert.ecklebecker at student.montana.edu. Kind of a mouthful there. I'm also on social media. Probably will be the only Robert Ecklebecker or Rob Ecklebecker out there, but generally under Rob Eck, R-O-B-E-C-K-09. And though I have a Twitter, I'm definitely not very active on it. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have like four followers. Well, I will link those, um, your email and your Insta handle, at least in the show notes, so people can find you there. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. 
If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Heinley on Twitter. And the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod. Or send us an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, volunteer early and diversify your skill set. 